In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You are advised that any view expressed by the host or their guest are not necessarily the views of the owners or management of Toginet Radio, Togi Entertainment, or the Owners Group, Inc. Welcome to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. Vivian is here to talk to you, to encourage you, and to show you how she had a successful homeschooling experience with her Wildflower Academy, and that her kids turned out great, and that with God's help, you can create the same experience she did. From her beginnings in Hostert, West Germany, to Dallas, it's been quite a journey, and her abilities to adapt, survive, and thrive are what make her unique in homeschooling. So have your pen and paper ready. It's The Sociable Homeschooler. And now, here's your host, Vivian McNinney. There's a time for everything, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Ecclesiastes 3.7 I came home from a silent retreat once and suggested that as a family we save our words until after the morning devotions, about 30 minutes after rising. For the morning people in my family, this was a huge undertaking, a burden for children and adult alike. They got around it by exercising their freedom to use gestures and pantomime. They giggled. I don't believe the author of Ecclesiastes had my family in mind when he penned these words. Silence is difficult and awkward for some. If practiced faithfully, though, it becomes a valuable tool. God can actually get a word in. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Sociable Homeschooler. I'm your host, Vivian McNenny. How are you today? We have another glorious week. Still, no respite for me from the daily watering of my garden. My poor green pepper plant was drooping again this morning and I had to give it some extra water out of the watering can to tide it over until this evening. Well, all my years in theatre and home education are finally going to pay off next week, at least for two and a half days. I've been invited, I love that word, invited to serve as a theatre panellist for Thriving Minds in Dallas. This is an innovative public-private partnership committed to preparing Dallas children to be successful in school and life by building a fair and just, sustainable arts learning system that provides high-quality creative experiences. The partnership includes the Dallas Independent School District, the City of Dallas, Dallas Art and Cultural Providers, and Big Thought. Big Thought is an organisation that encourages children and families of Dallas to imagine a better future for themselves and their community through the medium of creative learning. Their mission is to make imagination a part of everyday learning. They support the idea that children who have the opportunity to become imaginative, adaptive and productive will grow into adults who will comprise stronger communities and a more capable workforce in the future. Sounds a bit like what we're doing here with our homeschooling, doesn't it? My job with the other panellists will be to develop a deeper understanding of the current overall level of quality of teaching and learning in the arts and and in the arts, sorry, and assess the current relationship or lack thereof between in and out of school programs. This is exciting stuff, all about the arts. And I get paid. Well, It's time for you to grab your cup of tea and um, listen to my book excerpt this week from the chapter entitled You Are the Best. I now decide to try another co-op to keep my young boys from growing too accustomed to mum's style and eventually zoning me out. I now had two teenagers in my midst. 
Happily, my two boys did not require other boys of like age to show off to. They had two impressionable younger sisters to whom they were pretty special. Paris and Malia rightly thought their older brothers, Ian and Simon, had hung the moon between them and willingly allowed them to lead the way along untrodden pathways to adventure. Since my first experience with other teaching mothers four long years ago, I'd not had a burning desire to pick up the co-op baton and run with it again. Um, I didn't beat myself up about this. I did some soul-searching when I thought about it and was satisfied that when the need arose, I would be duly alerted. Neither my husband nor I felt the urge to include anyone else in our tightly run homeschool ship. For me, it may have had something to do with my boarding school upbringing where the nuns wouldn't allow us to mix and mingle, at least not legally, with the two local schools. Maybe it had something to do with my parents not being gregarious types or perhaps it was the fact that my brother and I played together with no need for outsiders to come in and take over our carefully orchestrated dramas. As an eight-year homeschool expert, I could sense that the time was nearing when I needed to hand over my teaching baton for some of the time because, you know, my pupils were getting used to my style and they needed something to liven up the waters, as it were, and take them to the next level. They were doing okay cruising along in neutral, but I wasn't happy letting them do that. Providentially, I happened upon another homes teaching mum whom I noticed had the potential to be something, at least for some of my children, some of the time. She had two compatibly aged boys of her own. I hastily honed my rusty social skills and insinuated myself into her world. Actually, she was already in my world. I saw her at an audition with one of her sons, who was a juggling expert. It turned out they lived near us. They believed families had the right to raise and educate their children. Their church abounded with homeschoolers, and within that circle, they were highly lauded, respected, and supported. They were active. Father was a volunteer member of a SWAT team, a firefighter, and a daredevil. Mother went along as the voice of reason, but could hike and blaze a trail along with the best of them. Some may have classified them as extreme fundamentalists. Later, I was to find out that they had bars at their windows and a fully equipped strong room in the, event, in the event of a crisis happening on their watch. For me, they were an exciting answer to a prayer for friends to distract my children from driving me crazy this year. They were also close-knit, and it was fortunate for me that this happened to be the year they too had chosen to branch out. Julia ran a very successful worldview Bible study for teens, but I really wanted my boys to be a part of. My boys didn't at first seem to notice her boys. They were quiet. But I felt the need to seize the opportunity of snagging two friends in one swoop. So I hovered in her peripheral vision persistently enough for her to eventually notice me and my boys. I introduced them during a break at rehearsal and she graciously invited them along to their next class in order to get rid of me. I, I mean we, were in... The first Bible study went well. I dropped the boys off early so that I could linger for a few moments on the off chance that I might catch sight of the proverbial barbed wire back garden. After the class, I heard about the windowless room that had non-perishables stashed away in case of an emergency. Twelve and fourteen-year-old boys harbour no secrets. I can't tell you how relieved I was that at least half my children would not go hungry or thirsty if they were left behind. I lingered in the friendship long enough to bring both the families together for some memorable occasions centred around the boys' deep friendship and their shared passion for the silver screen and stage. Julia and I decided to use to full advantage the the camaraderie, gosh, that's always a tough word for me, the camaraderie that was rapidly developing between our male offspring. 
We decided to teach some of our classes together. She was quite innovative in her approach. To start with, she suggested that the boys may enjoy playing flag football every Saturday with her husband and her brother-in-law. Welcome to a family who lived close to brothers, sisters and parents and cousins of various and appropriate ages. This sports activity turned into a tournament that continued for weeks. Ian was given the task of looking up the rules in preparation for the first game of the season, which was the next day, and in turn teaching them to Simon. Flag football also suited Malia, the fashion queen, who became the self-appointed cheerleader for the team. Paris invariably manned the water, snack and orange table. When flag football season was over and the weather turned nasty, we slowly gravitated to the indoors. For two years, we two mothers swapped our intellectual skills and formed a co-op that covered everything from economics and government to poetry and filmmaking. The presidential election was in progress that year and we were able to use Julia's local connections through Abundant Family to staff a polling booth one day. We read poetry and the classics and discovered that The Little Prince is the second highest selling book after the Bible. We shot a film closely linked to St. John the Divine's Book of Revelation, learning about script writing, costumes, camera angles, lighting, and direction. We made an intensive study of Judaism, thus discovering our Christian roots. My girls were always included, but most of it went over their heads, so they spent the hours at Julia's house colouring and reading, finishing worksheets, or playing with the dogs. Our co-op was open to all interested homeschoolers, which sounded too ambitious for me at first, but ended up being only a couple of additional children who drifted in and out depending on the subject matter. Some mothers aided us in presentation, but for the most part, the two of us planned and executed the lessons each semester and remained faithful. We equally shared the research and presentation, alternated houses where we met and toted our own lunches so as not to be a food burden on each other. For me, this was a highly successful venture simply because we were both experienced homeschoolers, had boys and insisted on high expectations for our children. Our students were able to cement their friendships. They saw each other at their best and their worst. They read essays out loud and were accountable to one another for their work. Our co-op finally had to close because college started to interfere. To this day, the boys are still best friends. They have a history, which is not always possible for homeschoolers to develop. Now I come to the final co-op that I participated in. This was not an academic swap with a teaching mother, although they were all homeschooling mums. This time I actually traded money for expertise in a field I was struggling with. I admit I probably could have studied and taught these subjects to to the children myself, However, I was having a problem assigning a regular spot in my schedule for these subjects. Other topics invariably showed themselves to be more appealing to the artist and me. The subject was science, and when two of your four children decide they want to pursue a career that requires chemistry, physics, and calculus, one just has to listen up and take appropriate action. Julia, my on-tap human resource person, came up with Mr. M. The drive in the afternoon to his classroom was as bad as when I used to work. Rush hour, traffic both ways. However, he was so charismatic and did great stuff like interact chemicals in ways that cause them to behave erratically and sometimes even explode. And as an added bonus sold flash paper, that I overcame my grudge of transporting Ian across three cities and enrolled them in his classes. 
Everything went well for almost a year. Mr. M told us Ian was an exceptional student, a statement with which I could find no fault. I handed over my checks promptly and willingly to keep his compliments coming and the classes going. Then a mishap occurred and Mr. M took an unexpected and compulsory sabbatical at the government's pleasure. I left spiritual judgment to he who knows best and civil judgment to those in office and rinsed my hands in true Herodian style and went in search of a replacement. A little gun-shy, I signed up with two qualified science teachers who seemed to appear on the scene from nowhere, as if they'd been waiting in the wings. They offered chemistry and physics in addition to a full range of science classes in a church at the bottom of my road. God could not have shod the feet of these women more brilliantly, and I basked in the knowledge that seeking the kingdom of God first really did make everything else fall into place. Well, it's almost time to go on my break, and I'm excited because I've got Mike Donnelly from HSLDA joining me after these messages. So come back. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. Everybody In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Mind Matters is the show that dares to ask what's on your mind. Take this opportunity to join Dr. Larry Ross, clinical psychologist and Joan Duhane, licensed clinical social worker, as they combined have over 50 years of experience in dealing with your mind. Fridays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, only on Toginet Radio. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. My guest today is Mike Donnelly, a father of six with experience as an army officer, entrepreneur, company executive, and attorney for the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Today, Mike and I are going to talk about homeschool freedoms in Europe, how the law in India is affecting their homeschoolers, and how homeschooling is possible for single parents. Hello, Mike, and welcome back. Hi, Vivian. Nice to be with you again. How are you? Oh, we're doing very well, thank you. 
Well, good. Well, we've got a lot of things to cover um, with you during this um, short time, so um, I'm going to plunge right in. Um, I'm hearing some disturbing things um, coming out of Sweden. The Johansons apparently still haven't gained custody of their son. Can you bring us up to date on what's happening there? Yes, this is this is really a tragic. It's just a tragic situation. Um, the family, of course, uh, had their son taken from them uh, in June of last year. While they were incredibly actually on a plane, just minutes from taking off, they were moving away from Sweden. They decided they wanted to go back to India, where Dominic's mother was from, where they have family members and. Uh, Police officers, at the instruction of social workers in the uh, in the county, came on the plane and, and took their son from them off the plane. And it, since that time, they have seen him only a handful of times. There have been multiple court hearings on this issue, and it's it's just really incredible that the Swedish authorities have not returned this this young boy to their family. Uh, it's uh, it's just hard to imagine. Well, this is just something that you expect to hear happening in somewhere like South America, not Sweden. Well, that's true. I mean, actually, I'm not sure I'd expect to hear it even in South America. I mean, you might hear something like this in North Korea or China. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, or, you know, I don't know, what are the draconian regimes around the world? I mean, it's just incredible. But the reality is this kind of stuff happens in Europe. You know, not all the time, not frequently, but it happens. It's not unheard of. Even in America, these kinds of things happen. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a warning to all of us that we need to be really aware of the government, what it's doing, and the power that it has, and how it's increasing its power. In the case of the Johansons, you know, we have filed a, a lawsuit uh, against Sweden uh, at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, uh, our organization, along with the Alliance Defense Fund, are, are cooperating mm-hmm. on that. And we hope that the family will get, will get justice. Uh, but, you know, even if they get some kind of ruling in their favor, um, you know, how do you make up for one or two years of forced separation like this, where the mm-hmm. little boy is, he's with another family, he's, mm-hmm. he's been alienated from his parents. It's just, it's just cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, people might be wondering, they're like, well, come on, you know, there must be something going on here. Um, you know, the government wouldn't do that if there really wasn't something going on. Well, mm-hmm. I'll tell you, there were a couple of little things that they did find, um, He, you know, after the fact. Initially, what they went to the authorities with was the fact that he hadn't been in school, and that was it. That was mm-hmm. the initial reason why they took the boys because he wasn't in school and they were uh, moving to guarantee his right under the U.N. Convention on the Rights of the Child to education. Of course, the U.N. Convention doesn't say that education means public school, but that's how they interpret it in Sweden. At any rate, after they took him, they found that he did have a couple of cavities, not very serious ones, and he hadn't been vaccinated, which, you know, that's not, that's not required in Sweden. Yeah. Uh, and that's it. When you read the court opinions, which I've read, that's all they talk about. And so, you know, even if that's true, is that a reason to keep a boy away from his family for a year and a half? Absolutely not. No. It's absolutely not. And um, in Sweden, uh, when this happened, homeschooling was legal in Sweden, but apparently now it is no longer legal in Sweden. No, it is still legal. It's still legal. Um, Although the parliament there did pass a law just this past June, which makes it harder Okay. for parents to homeschool. And what they okay. did was they changed the law to allow homeschooling only under what they call exceptional circumstances, although that term is not defined. 
Uh, and it also actually paves the way for criminal prosecution. Prior to this, parents who you know, did not send their children to school could only be fined, but they couldn't be criminally prosecuted. That is no longer the case. Mm-hmm. So some homeschoolers see what's happening in Sweden as a foreshadowing of the kinds of issues we would face if the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child were to be implemented in America. How real is that? Well, if it were implemented, I think the threat would be very real. the current social services system in our country already is highly stacked against parents in a variety of different ways. And if the UN Convention were passed, it would give state and federal authorities the authority to intervene in almost any case that they decided. And they'd have all kinds of things that they could point to that would allow them to intervene in the family's choice of uh, religious activity in the family's choice of disciplinary activity in, in, in the in the uh, their choices of activities that their children do their form of education for mm-hmm. example homeschooling or not uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know when you look at how the treaty is being implemented around the world you can see what can happen mm-hmm. now uh, you know why is that how does that happen well it's very simple our constitution in article 6 recognizes that a treaty that our country enters into and that's ratified by the Senate, signed by the President, which the U.N. Convention has been signed. It was signed by President Clinton in 1995. Our Senate has never ratified it, so it has not become the law of the land. But if the Senate ever did ratify it, it would become the law of the land. And the Supreme Court has has interpreted our Constitution to mean that treaties trump state law and federal law. Yeah, or yeah. They, be- they become federal law that is superior to other federal law in some re- in some cases, and so it's a very very it's a very very concerning uh, thing, uh, and you know we're very glad that the that the treaty has not been sent to the Senate yet for ratification, but the current administration has talked about wanting to do that, and so we've been working hard, and other organizations have been working hard to prevent that from happening, as well as looking at another way to secure the rights of parents for future generations. All right, and you're, are you talking about the Parental Rights Amendment? Yes, precisely. That you're working on? And this will override the international law that seeks to undermine the parental role? That's right. The Parental Rights Amendment, which would be an amendment to the United States Constitution, mm-hmm. would recognize explicitly in the text of the Constitution the rights of parents to direct the education and upbringing of their children. This is already a fundamental right that we have that's recognized by the Supreme Court. It's been Mm -hmm. recognized since 1923 Mm -hmm. by uh, several decisions that the Supreme Court has handed down over the years, and it's been affirmed. Uh, The Supreme Court calls it an enduring tradition of liberty, that parents have a liberty interest in the right to bring their child up. But even over the last 70 or 80 years, we've seen how the federal government and even state governments have continued to encroach in the area of the family and in, in the area of parents and in, in education and other areas as well. So, you know, it's a, the Supreme Court recognizes it, but it doesn't really seem to have that much weight. Mm-hmm. What we need is to put it into the black and white text of the Constitution so the court cannot ignore it. They have to establish it, and that for future generations, if the Supreme Court should change, and, and it certainly will, uh, that it'll be there as a fundamental right that the court just can't simply say, oh, well, we don't think it's a fundamental right anymore, which they've done in other cases. Mm-hmm. 
But it could it could be a right, but there could also be loopholes or strings attached. Like you say, in Sweden, homeschooling is legal, but they make it very, very difficult. Well, that's true. And, you know, even even in our own country, we look at fundamental rights, and fun, and no right is absolute. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there, you, you look at balance, you balance rights, and uh, a fundamental right simply gets a higher level of protection. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you don't have a right to go out and shoot somebody. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. not. You mm-hmm. know, um, the government, you know, has laws for a reason, and, and people's rights are not absolute. And so they have to be balanced against the interests of the society at large and other people and, and those sorts of things. Um, and so you just, you know, unfortunately our courts have tended to um, interpret rights differently over time, and we've seen that happen time and again. In some cases that's been good. Uh, in other cases it hasn't been so good, and it just shows that we really need to make sure that uh, this right is recognized for future generations explicitly so that the courts cannot just wash it away at some point in the future. Okay, so if this, if this convention is such a threat, it's not just a threat to America, it must be a threat to um, parent, parents and their rights everywhere. So why, why do some countries, why are some countries just going ahead and signing away and, and, and ratifying and, you know, not, they, they don't seem to be reading it the same way as we read it here in America or what, what is happening in these other countries? That's a very good question. Uh, and, you know, I'm not an expert in international cultures in terms of why they ratify treaties. The interesting thing is every country in the world except for the United States and Somalia has ratified the treaty. Yeah. Uh, now, actually, I say ratified. That's actually not quite true. They've acceded to it or signed it or ratified it. There are different ways that countries can become parties to the treaty. Now, different countries have different constitutions and different ways of, of dealing with treaties. Our constitution is very unique in the fact that we have this Article 6 provision that places treaties in such a high mm-hmm. level relative to other law. Other countries okay. don't have that. And so for uh, them, to sign on to the treaty may not be such a big deal. Oh, okay. Because, you know, when, when you think about the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, it has to be good for children maybe in India or China or countries that are forced you know, to work in factories mm-hmm. or in the yep. fields or be sold yep. by their parents because, you know, they view them as a source of income. So mm-hmm. it has to have some good, because United Nations isn't out there looking to, um, you know, sort of put a spanner in the works everywhere just for the sake. They're doing good work, right? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, well, yeah, they're doing some good, they are doing some good work. Um, you know, and when you read the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, it sounds good. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it does. But when you look at what's behind it and how it's actually being implemented in Western countries, yeah. in Western countries in particular. I mean, in, in, in other countries, third world countries, perhaps it's, as aspirationally it can be used to, you know, protect children, uh, perhaps that are being exploited. And sure, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't look at that. That's not, that's not what I'm looking at it from this perspective. I'm looking at it from the perspective of the United States and that what would happen if it were brought here. Mm-hmm. You know, our, we don't need the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child. Children are protected in our country. Mm-hmm. You know, families are functioning well in our country. We don't have children in you know being trafficked in various kinds of trades and being exploited. You know, as mm-hmm. child labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, children have a, a right, or well, have the opportunity to go to school in mm-hmm. different kinds of schools. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we really don't need this kind of uh, treaty. And we don't need other people making laws for us. No. You know, at the end of the day, you bring the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child in here, you bring in a foreign source of law that now can be used by American courts, and we, the people, 
we haven't had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. I find that problematic. Yeah, I find it problematic too. Uh, but I also, you know, just but your explanation of the, the Article 6 here that, you know, puts such a high priority on treaties um, explains it a little bit better as far as why the other countries seem to accept it. And I'm thinking, you know, America can't possibly be the only country that can read these treaties, you know, as clearly as America seems to. So, well, Mike, um, we're going on a a short break and um, we'll be back after this. How do you handle toddlers, teens and tirades when homeschooling? That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. Now this Saturday morning, we're going to count them down one more time from number 40 all the way to number one with the official classic hits countdown, the American Rock and Roll Countdown. We'll count down the biggest hits of the 70s with interviews and artist information, news, weather, sports, you name it, we'll have it this Saturday morning, 9 o'clock Eastern, right here on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Y'all wave your hands, look who's on, it's Dakota Man Keith and he's number one. Now you might think one's youth was sad, because he had a death kill, mommy and dad. The walls never struggle to communicate. Y'all wave your hands. Look who's on. It's Dakota Man Keith, and he's number one. It's That Keith Wine Show on Toginet.com, Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central. Every week, That Keith Wine Show will have guests that share their experiences, expertise, opinions, and personal lives with us to hopefully help us better understand others. The topics and guests will come from the American Sign Language community. For more on Keith Wan and the show, go to his website, KeithWanWANN.com. Listen with an open mind and willingness to learn and help with the cultural bridge. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Number number one, Keith's number one. Everybody clap because the Coda Man's on. Don't miss That Keith Wine Show. Wednesday nights at 8, 7 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney. The show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNenny. So, Mike, um, for a little bit, I'm going to pull away from politics, and I'm going to um, ask you... Um, oh, yay, I know. <laughs> um, how, say, say a family is homeschooling, and then um, they lose one of their... Um, parents uh, and father or mother dies or whatever else may happen and so the parent that's left with um the children may think the only option they have is to send their child back to school um but you know i've met um a couple of mothers who um are widows and they have managed to continue homeschooling their their children and i have seen how they've done this you know by by setting up they they give piano lessons or music lessons or art lessons or whatever and they do it in their house and their husband probably provided quite well for them for, the, for them to be able to do that but that's not always the situation so um what have you found because i know there are single moms and single dads out there homeschooling their children so tell us a little bit about what you know about this oh sure well I'm, i've done quite a bit of research on this topic actually i i personally i was raised by a single mom mm-hmm. i uh I, I wasn't homeschooled but um so I know a little bit about what it takes to raise children in a, a single-parent household. Um, 
And uh, recently I, I did a survey, um, and I received about over almost 300 responses, which is mm-hmm. pretty amazing, I thought. Um, and uh, what I found was that um, some interesting statistics. First of all, you know, the, the number of widows uh, as a percentage in the single-parent homeschooling population is actually quite small, about mm-hmm. 8, 8 to 10 percent of mm-hmm. single-parent homeschoolers are widows. Um, and the vast majority of single-parent moms, unfortunately, are involved in situations where there is still a father living and they've you know, had some difficulties mm-hmm. uh, and there's a divorce or they were never married or something like that, which, has, which comes with a, a whole host of other issues for the kids. But, um, you know, from a financial perspective, also, interestingly, the vast majority of single mothers' income is below $25,000 a year, mm-hmm. which when you think about it, I mean, that is below the poverty line. Mm-hmm. How in the world do these moms do it? And you pointed out one way they do it. They're creative. Mm-hmm. They use the skills and talents they have. Um, you know, hopefully if they're a widow, their husband or in the case of husbands, their wife, and they had a, a life insurance to provide for them. And that is the case in a minority of, of cases, unfortunately. But these moms go out there and they, you know, they teach piano lessons, they are teachers, they do tutoring, they have their own businesses, they work from home, uh, they do all kinds of things. They're nurses, they balance their schedules, uh, and somehow, somehow, I still, I mean, I've, I'm studying this, and I know they do it, I still don't quite understand how they do it, how they balance all these things, it's really amazing to me. Uh, but, but, but what I get from, from their responses to my survey is that they are so glad that they did it. And in a lot of cases, they're also getting support from the church or from local homeschool groups as well as from their families. But some aren't. Uh, and, and, but regardless of whether they're getting support, regardless of their income level, the hardships, these moms are saying, I'm so glad that I continued to homeschool my children. I know that it was the right thing to do to not put them into the environment of the public school where, I mean, you know, I was a single, I was the product of a single parent household. I know what that's like. It's tough. And so they're, you know, they just keep doing it and God bless them. Well, I know that um, when I started to homeschool, my husband lost his job. Uh, my mother-in-law said to me, well, you can just go back to work and, um, you know, sort of fight. And I said, you know what? I really believe that I am called to homeschool and that God will uh, allow me to be able to do that. And for 20 years, I was able to do that without going back to work. My mother-in-law just looked at our family with absolute amazement and said, I have no idea how you do it without a regular, you know, income. And we did it. And I don't know, you know, apart from the grace of God, how we did it, but we were able to do it. We were, you know, careful with our money. We had a good budget. I mean, it wasn't as if money was falling out of heaven for us or anything like that. We had to work at making our ends meet and making our budget work and stuff like that. But, you know, it worked. I could have taken the easy way out and gone, oh, I'm just going to go get a job. And then we won't have to worry every month when we come to pay the bills. But I felt it felt so right to be homeschooling that it really wasn't an option at all. And I'm just so glad I did it because I can look back now and go, I did it, you know, and it was the right thing to do. So, Well, Vivian, what, I mean, what was it, I'm just curious, you know, what was it, I mean, you're supposed to be asking me questions, but what was it that you were, were you concerned about, you know, not sending your children to the school or do you just felt like this was the right thing for your family? And what was it about it that convicted you and, and made you go on even though it was difficult? Um, 
I don't think it wasn't so much that I didn't want to send the children to school. I felt that if I did send them all to school, they were all at varying levels. They would have been in different schools and we wouldn't have been together as a family. I did not grow up with my parents, you know, with them. They sent me to boarding school. And so it's almost like that was a reaction. I went to completely the opposite end of the spectrum and thought, gosh, I didn't even know about homeschooling until I came to America. And then when I looked at it, I thought, wow, that looks as though it might be something I could at least do with my two youngest. And somebody said to me, gosh, why give the best education to just two of your children? Why not give it to all of your children? So I said, <laughs> okay, in for a penny, in for a pound. So I did, and I just I just did it, and it was so good. And it didn't, it, I mean, it wasn't smooth and easy or anything by any means, but I really feel convicted even now, just talking to you, that it was the absolutely, absolutely right thing to do. Um, I just had this inner feel. I had this feeling of peace inside me that this, it was just a good feeling. You know how, I don't know, these, these um, Bible studies, some of them that I do, they say if the feel, when you're doing something, if the feeling is good, then it's probably from God. If you're worried or, or nervous or if it makes you feel sick, then it's not it's not from God because God's not going to give you those kinds of feelings. And I've, I always had that feeling of peace no matter what, no matter whether my husband was working or not or whatever. There, mm. there was never any anxiety. It was just, it was a miracle. I was a walking miracle, me and my family. <laughs> well, most homeschooling families are. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, it's, I a, know. it's, it's really, a, it's miraculous, I think, when you follow God's plan for the family, um, how things work out somehow. And, yeah. and there are, you know, in my research, I found that there were so many testimonies of, of God intervening and providing for families in miraculous ways, you know, and, and in some cases that means that, you know, the moms are out there working, but it's still miraculous for a mom to be able to work part-time and support a family of six uh, and, you know, encourage them on in their homeschooling. I mean, and it can be done, and these kids go off and they do great things, and I think that, you know, a single parent, particularly where there's a divorce or separation involved, those kids are at much higher risk mm-hmm. of very um, negative consequences if they get into some, you know, public school peer groups, which, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, like for me, for example, that happened to me when I was in the public school, some, you know, not so great things. And uh, it's just because, you know, not having the father figure there and not having a mom who's totally focused because she's working, you know, you can kind of get away with stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, so I think children are, you know, who are homeschooled in single-parent households are very well cared for and protected um, in that regard, spiritually, or at least can be. Uh, and... You know, it's a great way, as you pointed out, for families to maintain relationships. And when, you know, there's conflict in the family in the case of a divorce, boy, that 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 protected area is so much more important for kids, especially younger children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. I also found that um, people... Um, did things for us they they wanted they didn't make us their charity or anything by any means like that but we we were involved in gymnastics one year and um financially we just couldn't do it anymore and they said don't worry about it we'll take care of it for you you know we have people who are happy to pay fees and stuff like that and i thought oh that is so hard you know you kind of feel like Mm. you're taking other people's money but then i thought you know what it's a gift because I, I like to give. I like to feel as though I can help someone in a way. And I would hate that person to turn around to me and say, here, take that back. I don't need it. I'm too proud to take it. And so you're depriving the person who wants to help you of their 
their gift and their ministry. And so I just thought, well, somewhere along the line, God's going to put something in my path that I can help that person with. And, um, you know, so I'll just let it go, you know, sort of take what I what, what is being offered over here and I will give, you know, further on down my my path. So that's, you know, that's the way I've, I've encouraged my children to look at things like that. And I found that a lot of people kind of were, were very kind and very helpful and very supportive even, mm-hmm. you know, and so, you know, anyway, so yes, it works. I it, just, it, I... just, it just works, doesn't it? I yep. mean, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will fall into place. And I think everybody around you starts to get this this good feeling of you know helping each other and you get this feeling of neighborliness and support and you know anyway well that they, so. well that can be the case but as you pointed out earlier sometimes you don't always get that kind of support mm-hmm. and uh and, and what i found from these moms is that oftentimes they they feel vulnerable to condemnation and so they're often you know afraid mm-hmm. and they also feel like people are looking at them like, well, what what did you do wrong? Not in the case of the widows, but in the case mm-hmm. of divorced families. And um, so they often are a little bit reluctant to, you know, go out there and, and seek the support that they need. And so I think, you know, as homeschooling bodies and churches, we need to really be on the lookout for it. And, you know, you know, biblically speaking, you know, James says that there's no, no nothing, you know, true religion is this, going out and caring for the widows and the orphans. And so, you know, we need to be doing that intentionally and and uh helping people who are in in need of help this research that i've done and um and some insights that i've gained will be published in an article in in a couple of issues of the court report coming up in the next few months so people who are interested can keep their eye out for the hslda court report and uh, they'll be able to read the article and and see the research that I, i did all right um, the last time, we've got about one minute left, so the last time we spoke, I know the Ramaikis, their son had just had a bike accident the last time we spoke, and so oh, we were yes. praying for him. Um, how are they settling now after, after another they're settling. Months? They're settling very well. Uh, their son is, is doing fine, mm-hmm. thank God. And uh, they're, they're doing well. We're still waiting to hear back from the Board of Immigration Appeals. We hope to hear sometime by the end of, of the year. Uh, they're taking they're taking their time, and so we just we're just waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a hard thing to be doing. Well, it's it's difficult for a family not to know what their future holds, but um, well, they to... do know that no matter what happens, they'll be here for a while. Because even if we lose, we'll be appealing it. So it's at least another year or two before we have a final answer. If we lose, if mm-hmm. we win, it'll be up to the government to decide whether they're going to appeal it or not. Um, mm-hmm. So at least for another year or two, they know they'll be around here well, in good. the U.S. Well, our time is up, Mike. Thank you so much for joining me again. We've had um, a wonderful conversation. Um, I've been talking to Mike Donnelly, homeschool father of six and adjunct professor of government at Patrick Henry College, where he teaches constitutional law. So thank you once again, Mike, for keeping us company and um, for going over some of the legal issues that both directly and indirectly affect us as parents and homeschoolers. Um, have a great weekend. And um, Always a I'm pleasure. To thank you. you again. Bye. Um, And for those of you out there who want to check out HSLDA, just go to hslda.org and you'll find out everything that you need to know, as Mike said at the end, especially about parental rights. And um, we need to go to break. How do you handle toddlers, teens, and tirades when homeschooling? 
That's what we're working on now. It's Vivian McNinney, the sociable homeschooler, and we'll be right back after these. Are you alarmed, anxious, angry, even afraid of what is happening to America? It's time for Grassroots America, We the People. Learn how to get involved in your voting precinct and take back our country. It's time to build unity upon the Constitution and the wisdom of our founding fathers. Grassroots America, We the People, every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Central on Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. Vision Onward is a mission. Vision Onward is passion. Vision Onward is compassion. It's God's power being shown in the world today with the guidance of the Holy Spirit through Jeff Holly and his family. And now, it's here on Toginet, Monday evenings at 9, 8 central. Vision Onward began over three years ago when Jeff and his family felt that after sitting in a church for years, they had come to a place in their faith where they were tired of sitting around and talking about their faith. They actually wanted to do something about it. So they decided to use their time, treasures, and talents that God had blessed them with to help those who have, by no choice of their own, been born into a world of poverty. So they walked away from the American dream, which they realize is actually a nightmare, so they can help others find hope in what seems to be a hopeless world. For more on Vision Onward, go to visiononward.org. This is truly a God-led adventure of the heart and humanity, making a difference for Christ. It's Vision Onward with Jeff Holly, Monday evenings at 9, 8 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney, the show for any homeschooler at any point in their homeschooling career. Join us as we plow through the problems, tackle the challenges, and celebrate the successes. It's The Sociable Homeschooler on Toginac. And now back to your host, Vivian McNinney. Well, has anybody ever heard of Banned Books Week? When I first heard about BBW, as it's called, um, which takes place on September the 25th through October 2nd, so it is past, my mind immediately jumped to the banned books that I read when I was growing up. Yep, that's right. I read books that were banned by the Catholic Church and the nuns at my school. For me, it was a form of breaking the rules. My mother never banned books because she sensed like herself as a young child, that I would gloss over what I didn't understand. So I read with a voracious and uncensored appetite. Amnesty International is one of the groups supporting Banned Books Week. They have their own list, books suppressed or censored by legal authorities. If you go to amnestyusa.org for a list of these works and their history, you'll see the list of their books. Mainly here, Uh, The issue is about the restricting of free thought and ideas and the ability to write and publish those thoughts and ideas that matter to individuals. Books on this list are prevented from being published and read in wide areas of the world. They're stopped at their source because the ideas enmeshed in the words are contrary to the ideas of those in authority. Here, the right to speak out is being severely and violently repressed. In America, Americans enjoy a country with a much freer press than other countries. Notice I say freer, not completely free. The American legal system does sometimes suppress legitimate expression for limited time frames. For example, for reasons of national security, copyright, or children. For the most part, we're able to enjoy the many books that are published thanks to the free press and need not take them for granted. When I first heard about BBW, Though, sorry, 
When I first heard about BBW, politically banned books didn't immediately spring to mind. I told you that uh, the books that I read that were banned by the Catholic Church did. And um, then I was led to a list of 100 banned classics and novels found on the American Library Association website. As I read through the list, I thought, I've not only read most of these books, I've also shared them with my children. Oh, my. Listen to a few that I found. Harry Potter by J.K. Rawlins. Of Mice and Men by John Steinbeck. The Giver by Lois Lowry. Bridge to Terabathia, Catherine Patterson. The Kite Runner, Khaled Hosseini. Ulysses by James Joyce. The Sun Also Rises by Ernest Hemingway. Winnie the Pooh, A.A. Milne. Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell. The Call of the Wild, Jack London, and The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien. Seems to me you've not arrived as an author until you've been challenged or banned. I could laughingly refer to this list as my reading list for the coming year. So I was confused. Was the American Library Association banning these books from their shelves around the States? Some of the titles on the list have been the targets of publication suppression at some point, but many, like those in the Harry Potter series, have not. So if they weren't suppressed, should they be labelled as banned? Are lists like these just shameless propaganda, as some conservatives charge, or a hapless attempt to market classic literature to teens? How did I react to a banned book list when I was growing up? I read the book, if I could find it. This could be a good way to motivate a reluctant reader to tackle Mark Twain or Maya Angelou or even D.H. Lawrence. After further research on the ALA website, I discovered that teachers, librarians and other outspoken community members have banned or challenged certain books in their schools, local libraries and small towns. Librarians and teachers necessarily select certain books and not others for their collections and classes. After all, not every book can be represented in small school libraries. Parents and patrons of the schools and libraries should have some say in these selections, but there's a world of difference between saying, isn't this one more appropriate for the YA shelves than for the early readers section? Or would this title be a better fourth grade book on this topic than the one currently being used than insisting none of our kids should be reading about this kind of thing? This kind of thing. Let's go there for a minute. In schools, this is what the banned books issue is mostly about. By the time children reach double-digit ages, they've lots of questions about life, death, sexuality, unfairness, hatred, violence, drugs and religion. They deserve the chance to explore answers to these questions in their reading and in their conversations. And as a homeschooler, I believe we parents can guide our children towards appropriate material to satisfy their questions within the boundaries of our own personal homeschool moral ethic. Personally, I do cringe at some of the material in middle and high school libraries, but as I mentioned before, some of the books may have ideas their readers are not yet ready to deal with fully, so, as I did when reading whatever I could get my hands on, they automatically self-regulate. Books are not the only places where our children encounter dubious ideas and counsels. Mainstream culture is conflicting and confusing everywhere you turn. However, we've taken the responsibility as Christian homeschooling parents to discuss with our children how to evaluate wisely and appropriately these ideas we may consider controversial. Banned Books Week is about twin freedoms, the freedom to write about what matters to you and the freedom to read about what matters to you. Without consciously knowing it, we could probably compile our own 100 books banned from the shelves of Wildflower Academy. But in my house, banning anything is not an effective discipline tool. Or is it? Hmm, that's an interesting thought. 
How about banning quietly reading, staying home in the evenings, early nights? Well, time for something new. I'm starting question of the week this week. And for starters, here's a good one sent to me by a friend of a friend who listens to my show. Since I can solve your problems and help you with your challenges at any stage in your homeschooling career, here goes nothing. My question comes from a young homeschooling mum who's having moderate success with her small brood, with the exception of her one-year-old, who's causing a bit of a problem. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? She asks, how do I stop my one-year-old from swinging from the chandelier? My husband's immediate response was unrepeatable, something about caning. I told him I can't use your solution on live radio, but he said he'd do it anyway. I am wondering if the one-year-old has a harness or a safety net or some kind of bumper system on the floor to protect her. How do you swing on the chandelier at the tender age of one? She must be talented. My first suggestion would be, after you've overcome the initial amazement at her cunning and nerve, to take down the chandelier or remove the accessibility to the chandelier. But if for some reason this cannot be accomplished and she cannot be quarantined from the chandelier area, I'd suggest appropriate steps to be taken to convey to her that this is not the kind of behaviour one expects in a quiet, peace-loving, homeschooling environment. And this, of course, we're talking about a circus family. I would then explain the consequences of said unacceptable behaviour and follow through every time despite the disruptions to your other children's education. Obedience is the foundation of successful homeschooling. Go back and listen to my ninth show where I deal with this topic. Think of this. When a new kitten comes into your home and it shows off by shimmying up the curtains, do you laugh and praise it? Raise your arms in despair and live with tattered curtains? Return it? take steps to discipline it and we all know disciplining kittens is rather is neither easy nor fun but it can be successful if you're diligent i've been known to put double-sided carpet tape on any furniture floor and curtain that i want to discourage nay ban my kitten from going they hate that sticky feeling on their velvety pads so do we tape the chandelier Isn't it funny how some children are? She'll probably have a skill that eventually can be channeled in the right direction, maybe a trapeze artist or a gymnast. I used to try to find an activity so my young ones could let off steam. Those big play gyms are fun. They can bounce and hang and swing with no risk to life and limb. So, mum of the chandelier swinger, pray with your husband for guidance before disciplining God is undoubtedly the head of your household. Show who's boss. Even if school with the others suffers from the initial interruptions and tantrums, administer consistent discipline for inappropriate behavior. Insist on obedience. It's an essential commodity for the future of your school and everyone's education. Find an activity where she can show off her swinging and tumbling skills. Listen to advice. A wise mother once told me, don't let a four-month-old do what you wouldn't want a four-year-old doing. Discover her learning style. Listen to my interview with Mary Emma Willis on show 20. And if all else fails, seek professional help. I'm sure Dr. Laura would have the same reaction as my husband. Malia and I did a mother-daughter thing on Monday when she was finished with making coffee. 
we went to the zoo to see Simon, the zookeeper family member. I let Malia drive, even though she'd had a tough week of late nights and early mornings and was dragging a bit, not as bubbly as she is behind the Starbucks counter. Her favourite thing to do after blending is to drive, so I let her take charge. It's always such a payoff when one of your children becomes proficient at something because of your incredible teaching skills. I don't even have to have a map in my lap. She's a natural-born directional device. We decided, despite her non-perkiness, to fake it anyway and have a great time. We had a picnic, lunch, bottles of water, our cameras and our attitudes. We were ready. And there's a challenge going on at the Dallas Zoo for two weeks called the Smart Strand Challenge. It's all about a flooring company called Mohawk who show off the superior quality of their product by fitting wall-to-wall carpeting in the the indoor pens of the largest animals in the zoo. Moyo, the 13-year-old 3,000-pound black rhino, is treated to carpet, and so are two camels and six African elephants fresh off the spectacular new exhibit called the Giants of the Savannah. Now, these six elephants living on this carpet weigh 45,000 pounds between them. That would be the equivalent of 650 10-year-old children living on the carpet, except the 10-year-olds have toilets. The campaign is called the world's largest land mammals versus the world's toughest carpet. And guess who wins out after two weeks of frolicking, tracking mud, and goodness knows what else across the carpet? Mohawk carpeting, of course. It comes up as clean as the day it was laid proving it lives up to its claim of being stain-proof and squash-proof. We visited our son and went backstage to the Okapis, and then we went on the monorail, and we saw some others of the um, horned types of animals that he looks after. We saw ostrich and chimps and a stork with a huge nest that didn't look at all comfortable. No fitted mohawk carpeting for this one. But the motion of the tram and the midday sun had me and Malia feeling drowsy. And later, when we hooked up with Simon again, we went to see Millie, Simon's given friend. And um, she's getting ready to set up house with her arranged husband in Florida at the end of the week. She will be missed. And Malia and I finally went home worn out and... um, We were ready for our cup of tea. And with that, I've come to the end of my hour. So I'll bid you farewell. And I'm going to see Eat, Pray, Love at the Dollar Movie tonight. I read the book. Elizabeth Gilbert is very funny. And then on Saturday, it's our wedding anniversary. And we have a dinner club with Titanic as the theme. We're making food from the last menus on the ship and wearing evening dress. And on Sunday, we're off to Lindale to celebrate the birthday of my handsome cowboy's mum. So I'll say thank you to everybody. Thank you to Mike and my faithful listeners and my husband. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord show you his kindness and have mercy on you. May the Lord watch over you and give you peace. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for The Sociable Homeschooler with Vivian McNinney on Toto.